episode 396, How to Answer This Question. Will Humira Biosimilars Reduce Drug Spend? Today, I speak with Anna Hyde. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. There are two facets of the Humira biosimilar market and launch that Anna Hyde, my guest today, talks about. One is market dynamics. The second is provider and patient confidence. These two concepts are tangled up together and cannot be separated. But let me back up a sec and explain. Although Anna Hyde covers this really well and offers context in the interview that follows. So first facet, market dynamics. This means fostering competition so the price of something goes down. That is the basis of capitalism. After all, you need competition to get in there and try to steal customers from each other by scuffling over price. In 2023, there's supposed to be 12 biosimilar products for Humira that come out, so we'll see scuffling and lower prices? Hmm, Maybe not so fast. Second intertwined facet, provider and patient confidence that the biosimilars are as effective and have similar side effects, i.e. there is confidence that the biosimilars are actually, for reals, interchangeable with the so-called reference product, i.e. Humira. Bottom line, if providers and patients are not confident in the biosimilar, then no prescribing is going to happen. Couple those provider and patient clinical concerns with a concern about manufacturer financial assistance. If providers and patients are worried that the out-of-pocket will be too high, and the biosimilar manufacturers are not going to offer any financial assistance, then again, no confidence, no prescribing. So if either or both of these concerns is present and the no prescribing is the result, this vote of no confidence means there will be no or limited uptake of the biosimilars. And what does the no uptake mean? It means no lower prices. Having competition per se isn't going to lower the prices because the monopoly remains the monopoly. It's having uptake of the competition that will erode the monopoly. It's having patients who are willing to migrate to the competitive products. And this is pretty vital here because right now there's a lot of cynicism out there about this biosimilar launch and that it is not really going to lower the cost of these drugs much for plan sponsors. And, you know, is anyone terribly surprised given it sure seems like AbbVie, who is the manufacturer of Humira, still has a lot of dominance in the market? How do they still dominate the market even though their patent thicket years are officially over, you might ask? Well, for one, they have payers over a barrel because members who need the Humira molecule are still 100% on Humira. Thus, AbbVie can still demand contract terms for Humira, like the demand that Humira has the lowest patient out-of-pocket for patients or has an equivalent out-of-pocket to any formulary biosimilars. And this is currently going on. Here's a second reason why Humira can still dominate the market even after their patent expiry is that plans and PBMs are, as Chris Sloan put it in episode 216, plan sponsors are addicted to rebates and Humira offers big rebates, which they will likely increase to match any pricing pressure from biosimilars. Here's a quote from the Goodroot white paper on this Humira biosimilars business, which is otherwise known as the hottest topic in pharmacy. Goodroot says, 
Given the cost rebate power play and the monetary loss that PBMs assume when rebate dollars are removed, we do not anticipate any significant shift to biosimilars or cost savings as Humira biosimilars become available. So, doom? Mm, Not so fast. The Goodroot white paper continues with this next quote, and this is exactly what Anna Hyde also talks about and gives some historical proof points for, actually. Goodroot says, There may be a tipping point in biosimilar pricing where the net cost differential will be significant enough to force plan sponsors slash payers to make their PBMs prefer the biosimilars. And then the white paper says exactly what Anna Hyde also says, and which I reiterated moments ago. For this tipping point to happen, this significantly lower net price must be coupled with a significant shift in market share to make up for the loss of the Humara rebate. Let me translate that. Provider and patient uptake has to happen here for the prices in this therapeutic category to go down across the board to meet that tipping point. Anna Hyde gives some great advice, and this advice is all summed up on a landing page on the Arthritis Foundation website, which we will link to in the show notes. This landing page includes advice for health plans, and a big part of that advice is to communicate clearly with physicians and other providers and also essentially with members and patients. Patients cannot find out that they just got switched to a biosimilar when they get a different box in the mail with a different med, with a different delivery device that they have never seen before, with a needle that's going to pop out from some mystery location. This is a fail with a capital F for all kinds of reasons that could ultimately undermine the whole Operation Biosimilar some plan is trying to pull off in an effort to try to lower prices to a tipping point so everybody can save money. There is evidence to suggest that over time, biosimilars can reduce cost, maybe a lot. But for this to happen, it's going to take really a thoughtful approach filled with bi-directional communication with providers and patients. Cannot forget this step. If everybody's on the same page, it may take a bit, but market dynamics will eventually kick in and prices will go down across the board. Everybody wins. My guest today, Anna Hyde, is VP of Advocacy and Access over at the Arthritis Foundation. She's a federal lobbyist and helps advance legislation and policies so patients can have better access to affordable medications and specialists. If you're looking for more insights into topics we discussed today, may I suggest listening to The Encore with Dia Balazi about copay assistance programs, the show with Chris Sloan about how plans get addicted to rebates. And if you really want to take a deep dive, I'll link to a playlist of eight specialty pharmacy episodes in the show notes. Listen to all of these shows and you will know more than 99% of healthcare insiders about who is kicking back to who and where the dollar is going in the specialty pharmacy market, which is essential background information if you're planning to evaluate the impact or the potential impact of these biosimilars. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Anna Hyde. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure to have you. Here we are at a moment. We're having a moment because we have Humera. Is it the biggest selling pharma product ever at this juncture? Ever. Yep. Ever. Yeah. Okay. So we have the most revenue generating pharmaceutical product that is going generic, which in the specialty pharmacy world means getting biosimilars. If we're thinking about a successful biosimilars market, what's that going to depend on? 
I think of a successful biosimilars market in a couple of ways. There are the market dynamics, of course, between payers, manufacturers, which we, of course, care about. That's important. But just as important is the other side, which is patient and provider confidence. And I'd love to talk a little bit about both of those things. On the market dynamic side, it seems like all we can do these days is complain about the high cost of drugs. And a lot of people talk about competition as this panacea. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out in other biosimilars that have come to market. And even in arthritis, the molecule infliximab, Remicade, went biosimilar a few years ago. So we do have examples of biosimilars on the market now for arthritis. It's just, it's on the medical benefit side. So it's a little bit different. But what we've seen with that is that both the price of the reference product Remicade and the biosimilars that have come onto market have all lowered. So in a way, it's doing its job. It has not been perfect. Uptake has not been wonderful there. It's growing, but slowly. But we are seeing that downward pressure working now on prices in that space. There was an interesting study that was done in 2022 that showed the molecules that have higher biosimilar uptake are seeing the more significant price reductions. And so that's part of why we care so much about the biosimilar uptake question. Let me just dig into that for a sec. Why would uptake of the biosimilars serve to reduce prices? It seems to me that that the higher the uptake, the more the pressure to lower the price. This has been true for Remicade, where there are now multiple biosimilars on the market. So when the first one came to market, it was like a toe dip in the pool. But now we have several. And so they have to that the more there's uptake, the more market share and then downward pressure that can come from that on that particular market as a whole. What you're saying is if the biosimilars come out and no one is using them, then why would Humira lower their price? Because they effectively, despite the fact they have competition, they sort of don't because everybody wants the branded drug as it stands, which leads us back to what you had said originally was that there's two pieces to this. One of them is market dynamics, but then the other one is patient and provider confidence. And I can now definitely see why it's really important to talk about patient and provider confidence, because if you don't have patient and provider confidence, then there will be no uptake of the biosimilars. Therefore, there will be no competition. Therefore, there will be no material price pressure. Did I get that right. right? That's right. That's absolutely right. On the provider side, I cannot emphasize enough how important that relationship with the healthcare provider is. The healthcare provider is the top source patients go to for information, not just that they go to, but that they want to go to. They want to hear about treatments from their providers. And so if you're in the exam room having a conversation about a treatment, whether you are stable on a reference product or you're a new start and you're trying to figure out what to start on, how the provider talks about a treatment path is going to impact how you feel and your confidence about that treatment path. So I think that dynamic is really important. Providers need to be confident of two things. One, that the biosimilar is in fact going to work just as well as the reference product. And two, that it's actually going to be available to the patient on formulary. So that's where those two pieces, the market dynamic and then the confidence piece intersect. And both of those need to be moving in parallel. Providers need to know these biosimilars are available to patients. They're on formulary. They're going to be available from the patient perspective at a lower cost. And I am, I feel reasonably confident The data suggests that these are perfectly safe and that my patient is not going to have an adverse event from transitioning to this biosimilar. And how are we along that timeline? It's not like it's a surprise. This has been coming if you you count the patent 
thicket years. <laughs> this has been coming for a decade. So you would think that, that we have had a bit of a head start getting providers confident or, or where are we? It's very interesting. It's been this hurry up and wait moment because we've been waiting for this for years now, right? These biosimilars have been approved since I think 2015, 2016. There were a glut of them that were approved and we've been waiting all of this time to see them come to market. Meanwhile, they've come to market in other countries. So we've been able to see in Europe, for example, where the Humira biosimilars became available to patients in, I believe it was 2019. So we have a lot of patient days there. So there's a lot of real world evidence now that doctors have been able to look at. And I think that helps with confidence. I've seen that in conversations with providers that has really helped certainly the experience of Remicade biosimilars coming to market and having that kind of real world experience here in the States has helped. That matters a lot. But I do think that what's going to really be the tipping point is having more patient days here in the States. So we now have one that is on market. And in the summertime, there will be several others that come to market. Hopefully, we'll start to see more of that real world evidence here in the States that will help to continuously sort of feed that confidence loop. And relative to providers now, and then we'll move on to patients. One of the things that I have heard, correct me if I'm wrong here, even amongst the biosimilars, there may be differences. Is that a thing? It is a thing and it's a bit of a sticking point if you look at the different patient and provider communities in this space. For new starts, someone who's brand new to a biologic or or transitioning between biologics, starting on a biosimilar, people feel generally comfortable with that. Where the sticking point comes in, and I'm saying this not necessarily on behalf of the Arthritis Foundation, but just what I've observed, if you're transitioning a patient who is stable on the reference product to a biosimilar, despite the fact that there are no safety signals in the data to date, and the FDA has approved these as having no clinically meaningful difference, there's still a concern that there could be some sort of reaction to transitioning someone who's stable. And I think where a lot of organizations and individual providers and patients are really thinking about the fact that none of these biosimilars as of yet on market, at least in autoimmune disease, have that interchangeable designation that allows a pharmacist to automatically substitute, there's still that sticking point. I think that a lot of it is an emotional kind of fear of change tug more so than something that's really rooted in the data or science. And I think that both of those things can be true at the same time, which I would be happy to explore more if you want to. Sure. So let's explore how there's both an emotional component at play at the same time that there's a belief in the data. For a person going through an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis, for example, it's a very tricky disease. It's hard to find something that's going to work for you. Most patients have to cycle through several drugs before they find one that works well. And the words that we hear patients say when they talk about their disease journey are, I just wanted to get my life back. I was in the dark. I, I had poor quality of life. I felt lost. I was at rock bottom. These really serious ways of thinking about your life in those moments. And when you find something that's working for you, then you hear my life back. This is my miracle drug, those sorts of things. So there's a real fierce emotional pull to not wanting to quote, rock the boat. That's something that we heard a lot as we were doing some focus groups and patient roundtables in preparation for this moment in time. If I tell you that this biosimilar has no clinically meaningful difference and it is expected to have the exact same 
sort of impact to you and your disease, does that make you feel comfortable about switching to one? And the answers that we got back were pretty unanimously no. If I am stable on this medication, why would I want to change? Even if you're telling me it's the same. Even with that, you can prod a little bit, and this is true for healthcare providers as well, and show them some of the data points and the real world evidence that exists from other countries. And they'll say, okay, I hear that. I get that. It's supposed to be the same. So there needs to be that goes back to the confidence building. There needs to be more emphasis on that education and discussion and really treating patients like they're an equal stakeholder at the table so that if they are going to transition to a biosimilar, they feel like they have a support system. They know where to go if they have an adverse reaction or if they're afraid they're going to have one. They have their provider to talk to. There is a support system there for them First of all, it definitely sounds like providers will need help and support providing that support network, which traditionally manufacturers have provided, but traditionally generic manufacturers have had nothing to do with. Like, I could see that this is a whole new world here. Absolutely. And as we look at it, we sort of feel like every stakeholder has a unique position and responsibility to make sure patients are okay. So for specialty pharmacists, it's if a drug is deemed interchangeable and you're sort of the arbiter about whether you're going to substitute, you might be that last sort of point of contact with the patient. In our mind, you then have an obligation to proactively talk to the patient about what's happening so that they don't find out they're on a biosimilar because they get a different box in the mail, for example. We also know that all of the injection devices are going to be different. There are going to be differences in each product. Patients need to have that bridge to make sure that whatever questions they have are answered. We talked about cost being a major factor before. For better or worse, many patients rely on manufacturer assistance to afford their copays. When we put these scenarios in front of patients and ask them, what questions would you have about transitioning to a biosimilar? One of the top questions that we get back is, is there going to be manufacturer assistance available? Is there going to be somebody who's going to be able to help me if I need to file an appeal? It's very practical questions. Just to interject there, I'm meaning to get to this for about five minutes now. The why of all of this, which has to be the cost. Like if the original drug was the same exact price, no one would change. Why would they? There's no reason other than the cost. So let's just say that the cost, and again, the cost to who? And I think you brought up a really important point here. If the patient is getting enough manufacturer assistance that the cost to the patient themselves is far less, even if the overall drug costs far more to their plan sponsor, their employer or whomever, but they're sort of insulated from that overall cost, then depending on what the plan sponsors choose to do here, like if they, and this happens all the time, we all know, right? You get a PBM, a plan sponsor, who puts on formulary a more expensive product because they're addicted to rebates, as Chris Sloan put it in an earlier episode, because they want those rebates. Even if you have a low-priced generic but that low price generic doesn't include the rebates and we're not going to get into perverse incentives with PBMs here, but it could actually wind up being more expensive for the patient to get the lower priced drug just based on all the crazy stuff with their formulary, right? So like some of this also is how are the plan sponsors, what's their uptake and how are they thinking through all of this just to add a layer of complication on our already layered cake here? And it's not just the cost piece, but it's also... 
the utilization management piece. When we saw Remicaid go biosimilar in the beginning, many health plans were requiring patients to step through the reference product before getting access to the biosimilar, which effectively shuts the biosimilar out of the market because no provider in their right mind is going to put you on the same molecule you just failed on. That's another component of it. When we talk to patients, they certainly want to know, and they'll ask those questions, particularly the savvy ones, cost savings to who? So there has to be a value proposition to the patient. And there also needs to be a recognition to many patients, the value proposition is going to be zero. I don't care how cheap you make it. I don't care if you make it zero dollars. I don't want to change. I don't want to rock the boat. I keep going back to that in my conversations and my thinking about this because that was such an aha moment to me in talking to patients. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be working towards transitioning patients to biosimilars because we've talked about how important that uptake is. It does mean that the way you approach the patient and making sure that they are that equal partner in the process matters a lot. With the health plans, it's something that I'm interested to see how this will unfold over the next few months because a number of major health plans have come out saying that they will offer the Humira biosimilars on formulary. So what is that actually going to look like? The cost may come into the conversation if a patient is really cost sensitive. Perhaps there's a reason they don't have access to manufacturer assistance. Perhaps they're on Medicare, for example. But then the question is, how much lower is the cost going to be? How much lower is my out-of-pocket going to be? And where are all of the savings of the biosimilars going? There's a lot of talk about savings to the system, which could have a positive impact on each player in the system. But what exactly does that look like? What is that impact to the patient? Those are questions that we still have that I think will take time to really untangle. Reviewing where we are here in this conversation, we started out talking about market dynamics and the importance of there being uptake of the biosimilars in order for the price of the whole category to diminish. Then we started talking about provider confidence as well as patient confidence, which is an essential ingredient to this uptake. And if we're thinking about provider confidence and patient confidence, it's probably what we're talking about is maybe two things, arguably. One is, is the effectiveness of the biosimilars comparable to the reference product? Then is the cost, is the price of this low enough to make the risk, the uncertainty worth it? Obviously, you have plan sponsors and formularies who are determining what the patient out of pocket, you know, forget about the cost of the system at this juncture. And exactly like you just said, you get patients who just want their miracle drug and they don't necessarily want to get all involved in what's going on at the kind of macro level, right? Like they care about their out of pockets and you've got plan sponsors and formulary decisions that are being made that very much determine what that patient out-of-pocket is. So you get the plan sponsors then who are very much determining a really critical component of that provider confidence and patient confidence. And just one point to ponder in this whole mix is from the provider standpoint, do they have a horse in the race? Like, if I'm a provider and now all of a sudden I'm being forced, depending on what the plan sponsors choose to do, or I decide maybe that I want to give these biosimilars a try, the why there for me is a question mark because all I would see from a provider standpoint outside of maybe patient adherence, right? Like because if a patient can now afford the biosimilar because they're much cheaper and my outcomes overall are going to be better. But outside of that, it just, it feels like a whole lot of work for me. Like all of a sudden I have to have a 24-hour hotline and my pharmacists have to work harder. Like there's an amount of work that the provider would need to be up for in this whole mix. 
I think a lot of providers feel like they don't have a lot of agency here. They feel like whether biosimilars are actually going to be available to patients is going to be fully dictated by health plans and PBMs. And therefore, it doesn't matter what I prescribe. I could prescribe the biosimilar all day long. If it's not available on the formulary to the patient, I'm going to have to go right back to the drawing board. So that administrative burden that you're talking about and the sort of extra work. So I think that needs to be a component too that's worth exploring more. And the conversations that happen between the health plans and the providers in their network, we have a whole set of recommendations we've put out there to, to health plans on facilitating that co communication. And in addition to communicating with patients well in advance of any sort of transition to a biosimilar or a biosimilar becoming preferred on formulary, is also having that conversation with the providers. Because I don't know that providers have a whole lot of confidence right now that they're going to be able to prescribe biosimilars and just have that work through the way we all think it should or want it. You're touching upon a really important issue here, this keyword communication, which let's just be frank, <laughs> is not in abundance in the healthcare industry that we have today. We've got providers that aren't talking with each other. We have payers and right, like there is such a dearth of communication in general. But as so many problems can be tracked back to a root cause of communication, this sort of sounds like another example of that. What are your recommendations here? If you have a health plan and they would like to move down a biosimilar path, like if I'm a health plan right now, an employer, plan sponsor, like whoever I am, what should I be thinking? So we did a lot of the work already, which I hope is really helpful. We have surveyed our patient community and we've done focus groups as well to really dig into what patients need and want in order to feel comfortable with biosimilars. And some of the things that we got back are if they're going to transition to a biosimilar, they want to know. I've had a lot of conversations with stakeholders over the past few months where they've come at this with the premise of, we're only going to inform patients if we need to, or does the patient really need to know if they're going to switch? My answer is yes. These are savvy people. To treat them as such a, I know I've said this several times now, but as an equal player in the decision-making, you're going to start off on the right foot. What patients told us they want is advanced notice if a transition to a biosimilar is an option for them. In fact, even before that, knowing that Humira is going off patent, the first question they have is, what is the likelihood that I'm going to have to switch to one? And if I do switch to one, what is the likelihood that I'm going to have to switch between multiple biosimilars? So I think understanding where the patient is coming from and the different questions they have can really help in shaping how health plans communicate with patients. So step one is make sure that you do plan to communicate with them ahead of time. Step two is make sure that there's a two-way communication feedback loop that's available to patients because they are going to have questions. These are heavy-duty drugs and patients understand that. They want to know, where do I go for more information? They want to have conversations with their health provider about these things. But I also really encourage any stakeholder to point their patients to their respective patient advocacy organization. So for us, obviously, it's the Arthritis Foundation. We have an entire landing page full of resources, FAQs, things like that. But there, there are others as well. We co-branded, in fact, a set of recommendations with the National Psoriasis Foundation and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. So we're really hitting the top three patient groups for those therapeutic areas indicated for Humira. We're trying to take some of that guesswork, that work out of it, and want to ourselves create that kind of feedback loop with health plans, with chief medical officers, with communications officers about what best practices around communication look like. But it's the two-way street, making sure that patients have some sort of recourse, whether it is a helpline through the health plan, whether it's coming to the Arthritis Foundation, going to their healthcare provider. They have somewhere to go 
to answer the questions and to have a meaningful conversation about what this is going to mean to them and to have an opportunity to sort of hear about what that real world data looks like. Patient testimonials. How did this treatment or how did this change work on somebody like me? That's always really important. Our goal is to keep a feedback loop such that no patient falls through the cracks and gets blindsided by a switch and doesn't feel like they had any ownership or agency in the matter. And the reason that matters so much to the confidence question is because what we really, really want to avoid is the nocebo effect. And that tends to happen more when a patient feels a lack of confidence about a treatment. That lack of confidence can come from a number of sources. It can come from a conversation in the provider office. So with providers, we say, make sure that you're talking about these things as being clinically the same, they're FDA approved, as opposed to saying they're cheaper or your health plan is going to require you to take these now. It should work the same. How is a patient going to leave your office feeling about this medication? And there's evidence now to suggest this nocebo effect where if a patient feels like the drug isn't going to work as well, it won't. It has nothing to do with the sort of clinical outcome. It's really, it really goes back to that kind of emotional component and that almost mind over matter piece. And I think there's an economic argument to be made there. I truly believe that all of the stakeholders in the system, that is the thing that you really want to avoid. For sure. So just summing up some of the really vital points that you just made there, as we have been talking about throughout this entire conversation, patient confidence, provider confidence in these biosimilars is absolutely paramount for the ability of market dynamics to lower the cost. So if we're thinking about communication as a vital component to enabling patients and providers, nothing for nothing, to feel confident in these new products, this is not optional, this communication piece. And, and you see it going horribly wrong all the time. And I'm referencing the blood thinner market in North Carolina, where all of a sudden you had a PBM do non-medical switching. And did you see Twitter on those days? Right? Like the backlash can be insane and probably rightfully so. Because again, as you've been saying throughout this entire conversation, you get these patients who are like, this is my life that we're tinkering around with here. There is definitely a gigantic downside to not communicating. Well, if anyone is interested in the biosimilar, market actually reducing costs for everyone. And if I'm summarizing your communication advice, I think I'd put it into three categories. First one is advance notice. Making sure that patients understand before they get the new box in the mail that this is going to happen. Because I could imagine this is your miracle drug and then all of a sudden something different shows up and you are taken completely by surprise, which could have a negative emotional impact. But also I hear stories all the time and you reference this at the top of this conversation where sometimes the, the device itself is different. And I just heard this story the other day where somebody wasn't sure what the business end of the operation was and wounds up injecting like their finger. Like if you start out with your entire dose in your thumb and it's painful and it's bleeding, that is not a great start, right? So advance notice. Number two, making sure that there's a two-way communication loop, that there is some kind of helpline, that there's a way to feel supported. Because as you just said so eloquently, the nocebo effect is very well proven. And if you have a situation where these patients feel absolutely no support and they got this new this box in the mail and they don't know what to do with it, like it, it just definitely, it's a handicap right from the very beginning. And then lastly, there are resources that are out there like other advocacy groups, like the Arthritis Foundation. 
Absolutely. The Arthritis Foundation's landing page on biosimilars where we're really aggregating all of this data and all of these resources for patients. If you were going to give just some top line advice to end on here to plan sponsors and their ability to communicate with providers and their own members, if you were going to sum this up, how would you do it? either relative to the opportunity itself, like this is what we could achieve if this goes well, or relative to some other aspect that maybe you you feel is the most misunderstood. Sure. On one hand, I feel like we're at this inflection point. Everybody's talking about specialty drug spending being so high and needing to be controlled. What I'm interested to see as more cell and gene therapies come on market, where we're talking about a million plus dollar therapies coming to market and you're really talking about a health spend problem, we're going to look back at this moment in the biologic space and say, man, I wish that we had really, really prioritized biosimilar uptake to tamp down that spending while we could so that now we can focus on this other thing. So that's one piece of it. The confidence piece of it, I feel like my message would be to not underestimate the importance of the provider and patient confidence in successful biosimilars uptake. Make sure that patients have agency, meaning that they have advanced notice if a biosimilar is going to be an option for them and that they have recourse to ask questions and make sure that they are comfortable before that new box comes in the mail. And then the third is to really utilize the resources that are already out there and the hard work that's already been done in sort of curating what patients want to know, who they want to know it from, and when and where they want to know it. And the Arthritis Foundation has done a lot of that hard work. I know I keep plugging the AF, but I cannot emphasize enough how many aha moments I have had throughout this process and talking to patients and being able to pull that forward into these sort of top line recommendations. Anna Hyde, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. There are links in the show notes on our relentlesshealthvalue.com website to every earlier episode that is mentioned in this show. Also, if you go to the website and look at the show notes, I will stick a playlist where if you click on the playlist link, it will just play all the shows that are mentioned. Thank you so much for listening.